Your notes and information right here, right now. Welcome to Just Twerts, your weekly helper for anything twerts related. I'm your host, Brent Lian. Party people, party people, can you get funky? Alright, I'm gonna do the intro, but I'm gonna try something new this time. Ooh. Do you guys wanna do the intro for me? Oh, alright, so wait, so you start off with, um, hey guys, this is the Just Thoughts yeah, podcast. Thoughts, the series. podcast. Oh, the podcast series. The podcast. Just Thoughts. Oh, f- Okay. <laughs> okay, ready? Hi guys, welcome to Just Torts the Podcast, where we make torts ideas simple and easy to understand. I'm here today with Nam and Brent, and we're going to be talking about intentional torts to defense negligence. <laughs> Hi guys, welcome to Just Torts the Podcast, where we make torts ideas easy to understand. I'm here today with Nam and Brent, and we're going to be talking about defenses to intentional torts. Yay! Oh, yay, that's a perfect intro. Nice. That was a really nice intro by Patrick. As of right now, let's just get into the topic. So we talked about trespass and different intentional torts in our third and fourth episode. Today, we'll be talking about defenses to those. Can you guys tell me what defenses mean in law? Oh, yeah, sure. For defenses in law, it is when you protect yourself against liability and you can do so in a number of ways, such as self-defense, proving consent, proving necessity, proving mental illness or contribution negligence on the part of the plaintiff. It's just worth noting quickly that with defenses, you can obviously have defenses which do a different array of things. They might be a total defense, which means that you completely escape liability, or they might simply negative damages or reduce particular damages, such as aggravated damages or exemplary damages might be reduced. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic in criminal law as well, because some defenses are complete, some defenses are only partial. Definitely. Okay, so with self-defense, there's an interesting case involving glass shards. Which one of you guys want to talk about? That case that you were referring to is Fontin and Catapodis. So the idea behind this case is that self-defense can be used as defense against liability, but to prove this, the defendant has to prove that it was reasonable to defend himself and that the force used in so doing was reasonable. So in this case, an argument arose between Fonten and Catapodus inside a store. One of them was the storekeeper, or he was working in the store rather, and the other was the customer. During this, Catapodus picked up a blunt tool, I think it was a wooden ruler, and hit Fonten with it. Now, in the heat of the moment, Fonten threw a piece of glass at Catapodus' face in return, which missed and deeply cut his thumb. The issue behind this is, like I said before, is it reasonable to defend yourself from a force that was applied to your person initially? It was held that to throw a piece of glass as a means of self-defense was out of all reasonable proportion to the emergency confronting Fonten. So yes, the plaintiff did provoke Fonten with the blunt tool and hit him first. But even though that was the case, the defendant's reaction was out of proportion and this led to a reduction of damages. What we were taught, maybe it was different to yours. The the case we used was Croft and Smith. That was oh, the one where we had that case. The, I don't recall that case. Oh, okay. Well, this is one where the, an argument arose between a court clerk and a lawyer. Mm. The clerk ran his finger towards the lawyer's eye mm-hmm. as a threatening gesture, and the lawyer bit his finger off. Now that was wait. He bit his finger. Bit off. his finger off. Yeah, as a response to like um, the, the whole thing. Are you serious? Oh, you know, I, look. I'm sure we can pull out the medical uh, <laughs> expert advice and all that. No, me. basically, it, it's a very explicit version of was it reasonable to defend yourself by biting someone's finger off? Explicit. No, right. So that was a very 
Yeah. That's a great case, actually. That's a great case for it's proportionality. More like a, it's more like a common law modification on the CLA principle, I think. The the other thing, just quickly with Fontan and Catapotus, yeah. is the provocation element. So the case, obviously, as we've already said, decides that provocation is no defense or cause of reduction in damages. And the other thing, however, is that it may be used to negative or reduce an award of exemplary damages. Shall we go to the CLA and briefly discuss how the statute regulates the concept around self-defense? Yeah. So what is the Sure thing. First of all is the Civil Liability Act Part 7, Section 52, Subsection 1, which relates to the fact that the threat must be unlawful in order for self-defense to operate. There was another CLA section which was just saying that assault occasionally death only allows for... Assault occasionally death? Goodness me. All right. I think... Yeah, I have no idea what that description is about. It's basically saying that uh, you can't have self-defense as a defense to intentional or reckless infliction of death if it's to protect property or to prevent criminal trespass. So you can't kill someone in response to a threat to property or, or to prevent criminal trespass yep. or to remove a person committing criminal trespass. So what what is the circumstance that you're allowed? to use basically. lethal force yeah if you're defending yourself or another person or perhaps to prevent or terminate the unlawful deprivation of your liberty or the liberty of another person right what was the next topic uh, contributory negligence yeah, contributory negligence. You can handle So that. can we just define contributory negligence? What does it mean? Just at its most general level, contributory negligence is basically some action or some uh, something by the plaintiff that contributes to the manner in which or uh, how the harm eventuated to them that they're seeking damages for. I think it's more like a defendant just saying, oh, it's part of the plaintiff's fault as well, yep. right? Yeah. So exactly. if you're crossing the road or you got hit by a car and they found out that you're actually jaywalking, that's contributory negligence? Yes. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Or we could, in fact, we could use the the facts of some of these cases. Oh yeah, let's to, do it. to demonstrate. What's, um, what's the case of Horking? Horking versus North Melbourne Football Club Social. Yep, Horking and North Melbourne Football Club Social Club, <laughs> uh, very aptly named. Basically, the plaintiff sued the defendant, alleging he had been violently ejected from the defendant's premises, whereby he suffered personal injuries. On the other hand, the defendant maintained the plaintiff was a trespasser who had been removed using no more force than necessary, and claimed that the plaintiff's damages should be reduced for contributory negligence. What was basically held in that case is that the force used was excessive and more importantly as a general principle, contributory negligence is no defense in claim for intentional battery. All right, the second case, New South Wales and Riley. Nam, do you want to talk about it? Is that the pad, like the paddy wagon one? Yeah, that's the paddy wagon one. Yeah. So what was, the, what was the most memorable thing out of the case for you? Oh, so someone got arrested. Mm-hmm. The, the plaintiff got arrested. The police officers handcuffed him really tightly, chucked him in the back of the paddy wagon. Throughout the journey from his place of arrest to the police station, he was thrown around very violently in this paddy wagon and uh, he broke his wrist. And the important thing that it was partly the movement of the paddy wagon that meant he was thrown around and partly he was throwing himself around. Out of protest, which is why it's a contributory negligence case. Yes, so please try to use that as a defense. Exactly. And what does the court say? So the court said that where there are indirect and unintended consequences of an intentional trespass, the plaintiff's contributory negligence is a defense in respect of those consequences. So unlike for intentionally committing a tort to a person, if it's a something that happens as a result of that. Then it could be a defense. Then it could indeed be a defense. Right, right. So let's just try to summarize the principle. From the case of working, 
We know that contributory negligence is no defense to an intentional act of battery. However, if you have any consequences that arises unintentionally or indirectly from the act of battery or any act of personal trespass, then contributory negligence can act as a defense. Okay? And on this account, the uh, plaintiff's damages were reduced by 40%? Sounds right. I don't have a doubt. <laughs> that's a lot of damages. No, that's probably correct. That's 40%. That's what I got. Well, he, he was throwing himself around. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, you I know, mean, you really got to... Think about it. Policy reasons... <laughs> All series. The law, man. All right, let's let's go into necessity. Episode eight. So under necessity, there are two ways that you can use necessity as a defense. You can use emergency as a defense right. or medical treatment. So uh, the necessity of medical treatment as a defense. In terms of necessity, we're just saying the fact that we're committing the intentional tort is because it's necessary to either do something, you know, to save a person's life or to get out of an, a situation of imminent danger. There was a very famous case on this. It's called Proudman and Allen. Does anybody know anything about it? Oh yeah, in Proudman and Allen, the defense defendant turned the steering wheel of a car mm. that had lost control to avoid it crashing to other cars and in doing so the car it was felt down the yeah. sea right? it ran, ran into yeah. the sea that's right yeah. so there was basically some guy parked his car left the handbrake off he went to a bar to have a couple of beverages and in the meantime his car started rolling down the hill cheeky and some other bloke hopped in the car steered it away from the other parked cars that the rolling stray car yes. was going to hit yes but accidentally put the car into the drink mm. oh, that's that's like a, an action movie sort of thing so the contention rests upon um, whether the guy who jumped into the car and steered it away to avoid it crashing to other cars whether or not he's responsible for the damages to the car that he was steering yes was it like a split second decision correct yeah. yes the basic judgment was that necessi- necessi- <laughs> necessity necessity <laughs> Uh, may act as a complete defense in situations of real and imminent danger when of course a car is rolling down the hill and part of this as well was the fact that the car was unlocked yes. and so he had trespassed on this person's property but he was doing that because there was this real and imminent danger that it was going to cause all this damage to other cars down the hill it could have you know think about every movie ever where the, the baby's pram has somehow gone you know rolling down the yeah, hill yeah, yeah, and yeah, the, I know what you're talking the about. hero has to go and save it yeah, or, and I guess yeah, he, he did so with reasonable belief that his interference was justified. I uh, think it was justified. Of course. Yeah. It's just it seems it relatively justified. <laughs> yeah, it, it was the necessity of the situation and it was intended to benefit the owner. Oh, what, a, what a good case. Alan. What a good yeah. guy. All right. Let's get into the case of... Southwick. Southwick. I, I think it's Southwick. Basically, the defendants were homeless families who, having been unassisted by the relevant authorities, occupied a derelict house, basically, in order to get off the streets. Mm. Uh, and they sought to justify the trespass on the grounds that it is the duty of the council to provide temporary accommodation for persons in need uh, and this was decided by the court not to be sufficient and in saying this they put that necessity is confined within very narrow limits so it's not as the quote goes a mask for anarchy there's only a select group of scenarios which are really truly the danger is imminent and real enough yeah, so, so what was not, not even homelessness or hunger counts as imminent danger not even homelessness or hunger so economic necessity what was said is no defense okay I think that could concludes our discussion on necessity. So let's get into consent. Yeah, we have a lot of stuff for consent, actually. I want to do it in two parts. So the first part will be about common law, lots of the cases with you know, Jehovah's Witness and blood transfusion. Second part will be the statute, and we'll try our best to summarize the essence of the statute. With consent, I think the problem that we see happening again and again was the plaintiff was placed in a really dangerous situation, like it was a car crash or something, and he or she is like losing a lot of blood, 
and then they, they want to do a blood transfusion but because of the plaintiff's like religious belief they weren't able to do it even if they did it the plaintiff sort of brought an action against the hospital or the surgeon saying like oh that's violating my personal right it's probably battery the general rule is that medical treatment without consent is battery and which case is it from um that was for Marion's case wasn't it yeah i think it was that was a really famous case on this topic so yes wh- what happened in Marion's case so there was a girl from the northern territory a 13 year old girl who suffered from physical and mental disabilities her parents said that she was experiencing worsened conditions because of puberty and wanted her sterilized um Marin, however could not consent to this treatment as she wasn't intellectually able to do so now the point of contention is can parents authorize such treatment is court authorization needed i think like with medical treatment i think millet and shulman would have been a better but i think mallet, mallet and shulman is a... foreign authority whereas marion's case is from the high court yeah mallet, which is Ma- why i think the case oh. of mallet was from canada Yep. Surprisingly oh. large number of cases to do with Jehovah's Witnesses. Anyway, Marion's case, there are a number of things said by the High Court in that instance. One of the very important ones is that the onus of proof of consent rests on the defendant. The defendant as in the surgeon or anybody who's doing the operation. Yeah. And then there was also some other material to do with the fact that the consequences of a wrong decision were particularly grave in this instance because it was to do with sterilization. And so the decision should not come under the scope of parental power. Uh, and I believe we will be talking about Prince Petrio a little bit later. Yeah, well, stepping aside from the medical treatment thing for a while, what happens when you participate in a sport and there's like an inherent risk? In sport, consent is implied by conduct. So injuries that are suffered in sport are therefore consented to by the plaintiffs entering into particular rules of sport. This is very different from anything that happens off the field because really sports is different from other scenarios in that what in what is expected from the actor, so from the person committing the act, the so-called battery, in the objective of the activity. Bodily contact in scenarios such as tackles in rugby for example are therefore considered inevitable concomitants how do you say that concomitants 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 are therefore considered inevitable concomitants of ordinary play what's so concomitants it is acceptable in a game of rugby for you to tackle someone right and that it is right. under the rules of the game and your participation in the game is implied consent yeah, so that makes uh, sense. yeah so Giamelli and Johnston were the respondent plaintiff sued the applicant, in this case the defendant, for damages in assault. This is because of the intentional application of force via elbow to face during the course of a football match against the game's rules. Of course, under Australian football rules, you can't elbow people. So this is the, the main outcome of the case. Yep. Yep. Players are taken to consent to any contact directly contemplated by the rules. And this also extends to commonly encountered infringements. What this consent doesn't extend to is contraventions of the rules that the player intends will cause bodily harm or knows or ought to know that bodily harm is likely to result. Oh, in saying that though, I think when we're talking about violence and all, there are many sports where the nature of the sport is very violent and it is okay to punch someone or elbow someone or where you know there's blood running from your nose and all that is fine within the context of that sport. The authority for that is Palanti and Stadium's Propriety Limited, where it is within the spirit and intendment of the rules of that game or sporting contest. When there's a punch to the face in a boxing match, for example, that is completely fine because within the context of that sport, yeah. um, violence is permitted. I think viewers can just accurately tell if it's in the rules of the game or if it's mm-hmm. not, right? Yeah, using the example of boxing, if you look at, for example, if Mike Tyson had ever fought in an Australian jurisdiction, <laughs> knocking someone out in one blow, that's not only part of the rules, it's the point of the sport. However, having your ear bitten off by Mike Tyson, probably not an envisioned part of the rules. I think we should finish off by saying that consent can be retracted at any time. 
Because that's, that's in what point. context? As in, like, if you're playing a sport, let's say you're boxing, and then suddenly you decide that you do not want to partake in the particular fight anymore, and you walk away. If you jump out of the ring, yes, stuff like that. Jumping out of the ring, or if you walk off the field, or if you decide, or you you verbally or by conduct communicate that you do not want to partake in the particular activity happening at that particular time anymore, and then the violence, the battery still occurs to you. It makes me wonder if a retraction of consent by conduct or a verbal retraction of consent can be cannot be used as a defense sorry. that's a very that's a very interesting case if you're in a boxing ring and you're about to punch someone and you're throwing in the middle of throwing the punch and they say i don't want to box anymore yeah you would imagine that by policy alone shouldn't be a defense it's an open-ended question uh, yeah yeah so I now away from the away from the sports field and back to the medical field mm. let's just discuss several cases with the jehovah's witness Oh, sure. What about the case of Hunter and New England Area Health Service versus A? Uh, sure. I had, I had this catchphrase from the case, Advanced Care Directive. Yeah, it's a good case because it's... So it's New South Wales um, Supreme Court Authority. So basically, the facts of the case are Mr. A, uh, who's the plaintiff, signed an Advanced Care Directive. What does it mean? So basically, I understand it to have been some sort of note which said, in this case, that he refused at any time in the future to undergo kidney dialysis. So 11 months after signing that, he was admitted to hospital and required dialysis in order to preserve his life. And so basically what this case was is the hospital going to the court to ask for approval for that they would be justified in complying with the patient's wishes, even though this was likely to cause death. And the the judge in this case did grant that declaration. What this case did is that it approved Mallet and Shulman, which I believe we briefly touched on before, to do with where an adult, a patient of sound mind refuses life-saving medical treatment the carrying out of that treatment against the wishes of the patient will constitute battery what was said here is that it doesn't matter what the reason if any was for the decision to sign this advanced care directive it doesn't have to be an advanced care directive it could be some other form of written withdrawal of consent as long as it was made voluntarily by a capable adult and in the absence of vitiating factors such as misrepresentation or fraud i could refuse blood transfusion because i believe that other people people's blood has pixies in them or something and What's I don't want pixies, pixies. I don't want pi- fairies you know I, I, I don't know some mythical creature living in someone's blood and oh, I don't want that blood in my body regardless of the reason um, it's, it's a respect for personal autonomy yeah so right. regardless of religion religious beliefs or personal beliefs or pixies if I don't give consent you can't touch me you can't yeah, you're you bloody me definitely alright what about the case of X and Sydney's Children's Hospital Network I think that was the case with a 17 year old kid who has an aggressive of cancer mm. oh yeah yeah there was also blood transfusion and it turned out to be a Jehovah's Witness mm. so what was the thing that happened in that case which is particularly noteworthy mm. so I guess the issue is does parents patriae still apply when the patient is a minor but gillic competent do you want to define gillic competent oh I guess sure thing the gillic competency very simple concept it comes from the case of gillic and west norfolk and Wisbech Area Health Authority from the United Kingdom. And basically what that said is if you have a minor older than 16 who is particularly mature or able to understand exactly what is at hand, Mm -hmm. then they are able to consent. So what this case was deciding is whether or not a Gillick competent child can refuse a procedure which the court has ordered under its parens patriae jurisdiction. And so it's parens patriae jurisdiction in Latin. It translates to father of the nation or something Mm -hmm. like that. 
that. What? Call of the nation. Uh, whereby the court can act... In the best interest of the child. In the best interest That's of the child. That's what they have to apply for the authorization from the yeah, court. Right? Definitely, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I guess in this case, it's very tricky because a 17-year-old is... Yeah. What was it? X number months? of days or months. Yeah. yeah. He was very close to his She's not being a mine anymore. Exactly. But in this case, though, parents' patriae still applied. The argument that was raised was based on the notion of vulnerability under the argument that X lived a sheltered religious life and mm. might change his mind later on. Really, X was portrayed as a vulnerable child. The fact that he was guilty competent did not change his vulnerability. Mm. The it's, court decided for him. It's yeah. worth noting that in legal terms, what was found is the parents' patriae relationship is more more powerful jurisdiction than that of a normal parental relationship, mm. which is what meant that the Prince Patriarch jurisdiction overruled basically both Gillick competent consent or, or lack of consent and the parents being opposed to the transfusion. The other thing that was said to policy reasons, uh, Justice of Appeal Baston said that the sanctity of life is of greater priority to the state than the dignity of the individual in this mm. case. Which is yeah. pretty red hot, as they say. <laughs> very, very nice. Well, yeah, I mean, people might say, well, hang on, this really goes against Mallet and Schumann. really goes against the fact that consent is absolute, right? Yeah. But we have to remember that in this case, X was still under uh, under eight, 18 years of age, and he was therefore still legally a minor. Okay, let's, let's relate it to some of the statutes that we'll discuss. So we were talking about minors and adults, but there's also a category, a legal category called young persons. When would a person qualify as a young person? A young person. Person. A young person. A young person. Okay. Was that in the CLA? Uh, was it or? The Miners Property and Contract Act, perhaps. Okay. I don't know. Did you have that? It does say that here. If you're if you're greater than sixteen but less than eighteen, you are in fact a young person whose what? prior consent of a parent slash guardian does not override their own which, consent. Which act is it from? Miners Property and Contracts Act, nineteen seventy, New South Wales, section forty nine. So if you're between sixteen and eighteen, you're a young person. What if you're under sixteen? Or what if you're under fourteen? Uh, if you're under 14, then the prior consent of a parent or guardian does override your own wishes. The consent of the minor mm-hmm. has no effect. Emergency medical treatment is allowed without consent of that minor. And special medical treatment, such as a contraception or vasectomy, is allowed only if necessary and urgent to save life or to prevent serious damage. Yeah, and that's yeah. from the Children and Young Persons Care and Protection Act, that last section. 1988, New South Wales, section 174 and 175. (laughs) And then if you're between 14 and 16, the minor's consent does have effect, as from the Minor's Property and Contracts Act, 1970, uh, New South Wales, section 49. Mm. And the same applies as did for the child with respect to emergency medical treatment and special Mm. medical treatment. This is a part where it's like, by listening to the podcast, you might find it really confusing. I recommend the best thing that you can do is just to read those two acts and make a table. So when you, when you say like the kid is under 14, when it's between six, 16 and 18, or both 18, just make a table and put the relevant like liabilities right beside it. It's gonna help you a lot with that. Okay. Yeah, all good. All right, so that's the end of our discussion this week. Focus. Thanks for joining us on episode eight of the Just Torts, Just Torts, the podcast. Make sure you check out all the uh, episodes before this, as Brett has put a lot of work into them. Yeah, wrap it up, everyone. Yeah. All right. right. Next episode, we'll be getting the lecture of Dr. Belinda Reeve with Jess. Definitely tune into our next episode, and yeah, we'll see you then. Bye. What's your Instagram? 
Uh, follow PWD Hendo on Instagram. What's what's your Instagram? Uh, follow me, uh, SuperNam underscore. Bortman669. Patrick is single. Six, six, nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, was, I, was, I was advertising for you. Oh. What, you're single? Oh, well, congratulations. Yeah, can we not have this on the podcast? <laughs> congratulations. congratulations. That was Facebook official. That was podcast official. Talking about the about boxing. boxing match. Yeah. Oh, well, it was very, very... Like, it, if you watch the actual video, the footage on YouTube of him biting the ear off is fucked. It's like bloody bloody yeah, can we put that in it's fucked <laughs> I mean so basically I guess that it's beep I'm Sorry Miss Jackson I am